Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today I show you Rich Van Hayes, CEO of Wax. Wax is a platform for ensuring collectible items of high value and making sure that if anything goes wrong with your treasured collectible or sentimental value object, that basically you are protected. In addition, they've helped people with custody and leverage of these assets. With that, here's my interview with Rich. Rich, thanks for taking the time today. Good to see you, buddy. How are you? Good. So, Richard Vinhays of Wax. Tell us about Wax. All right. Well, well, Jason, thank you kindly for, for the time and, and the opportunity to chat with you today. So a little bit about Wax. So just a, a bit of a high level. So we consider ourselves a, a collectibles company that's geared towards kind of empowering a general collector's experience from start to finish. So whether a collector is looking to protect an item organize it through a collection management platform or unlock some liquidity or vault it. Like we're trying to be at the center of a collector's universe. Excellent. Okay. So we're going to dive into that because there's a lot to cover, but let's start off with the, the history. What came, how did this come about? Well, I think it probably makes sense to share a little bit about my background because without it, it's gonna, it's not going to make all that much sense. So I'll tell you a little bit about my background. So I, I come from a management consulting background, worked for a firm for about 15 years as an executive, and I focused on the financial services space. And I basically grew a practice that was geared towards the tech transformation space. So banking and capital markets, insurance, those were areas of comfort and exposure for me. Along that time, I'm, I'm also just an avid collector, and I always have been since I was a kid. I'm talking comic books, trading cards, watches, you name it. But watches in particular, I, I fell into really hard, especially over the past 10 years. And a, a lot of great relationships were kind of forged as a, as a result. And strangely enough, I've had meetups with people all over the world um, that are fellow collectors. I, I'm talking Dubai, Switzerland, Italy, California, New York, you, you name it. And it's exactly what it sounds like meeting up with fellow collectors, just talking about the objects that we collect. And that experience was just so wild to me that I actually ended up publishing a book called Discovering Time. And this was a few years ago, and it was just more of a reflection of what I saw in this, this very strange little collector community. During that stretch, though, one of the, the, the founders of Wax and around the time we, we kind of pulled it all together had an underlying project problem, which was extremely commonplace that most collectors knew about it at the time, which is, was, was trying to protect a very valuable collection. I mean, sizable. I mean, it was probably a couple of million dollars at the time. And he tried to get it insured through his homeowner's insurance, just went to his carrier and they basically laughed in his face and said, that's, that's absurd. We're not going to do that. We don't think the value is there. Extraordinarily high friction, a lot of pain points. And it turns out it was a very common thing in just that community at large. And, and therein was the inspiration behind Wax. And, and ultimately around the time where I got pulled in to help develop and, and grow it. And that's why we wanted to create a company that's kind of geared towards the collector. And I really emphasize that part because focusing in on the underlying tech, whether it's insure tech or fintech or whatever type of technology, if you're not really looking at it through the lens of the individual that's going to be using the product, it will by and large fall on its face. And when it comes to collectors, these are, these are individuals that are very sophisticated and, and extraordinarily protective of the things that they care about. And very often, way more than the things that they are forced to care about. Like when you're talking about homeowners insurance, auto insurance, those are things that you are legally obligated to do. But when it comes to 
collectibles insurance, it is an optional thing. But I think what people are starting to realize that it's it's less and less of an option these days because they've grown in such tremendous value. Well, yeah, you're talking four, three, four, five, six digit amounts on some of these things. So yeah, there is definitely that challenge. And I think I'm not surprised at the response. I mean, this is a uh, that the insurance company gave him initially because, frankly, these are, for lack of a better term, a, a niche market in the insurance world, right? It's not the big things that everybody's looking for. And the level of expertise that would be needed to actually understand the value of these things is unless the person is a collector of that sort of stuff, has no knowledge of it, right? So it's just something they're not, it's not big enough on the micro for them to to basically bother with. But in aggregate, it is a sizable, sizable market, right? So talk to me about, you know, you actually alluded to technology already. So we're talking about insurance here. So talk to me about the technology aspect of this. Like, where is the tech coming to play? And how are you basically delivering insurance on collectibles? Yeah, now I'll jump into that in, in just a sec. Let me, let me give you a little context just because you opened up Pandora's box on the size of the market because that played into the why we jumped into this to begin with, right? So ultimately, we are, we are a venture back startup, right? So Slow Ventures is, is, is one of our lead investors or is our lead investor along with a number of, of wonderful investors. And the timing was just right at the time of, of that, that seed raise that happened a few years ago. And really just comes down to more and more people were investing in the things that they enjoy, really, the, the community side of the, of the equation. Collectibles are now seen as an alternative investment, whereas in the past, it was just kind of seen as a, a toy or a, a strange hobby. Our target demo is, has disposable income, right? Which is kind of an important note to kind of call out. Uh, we kind of, we lovingly refer to them as the Henry markets, uh, the high earners, not, not rich yet. In many cases, we're kind of there with them at the early stages. And then as they evolve into a, a wealthier lifestyle, we tend to be part of that journey. And then the market size. So you're right. When you kind of compare it to the broader size of other categories, it's small. But when you look at the, the total addressable market today, it's $450 billion, right? And it's anticipated to kind of grow to about close to 650 billion by 2031, right? So depending on the, the research that you look at. But for us, we, all those things in aggregate kind of led to us kind of creating the service. And it kind of breaks down, if I was to kind of break it down into a few parts of what the business is, right? So there's the collection management side of the equation. So this is a free service. So this is all geared towards the, the user experience within our app. An individual comes in, they take a couple photos, they, they answer a couple questions. And you could use this to just organize your stuff. And it's shocking <laughs> the amount of education you could pick up. Yeah, that, that's right. Like the stuff you could pick up from just paying attention to the things that you have is, is sobering to a lot of our collectors. So that's kind of part of And in all their comic books into a database that basically told them the price. I was quite surprised at the aggregate. <laughs> yeah, like I, it, it, it's, it's shocking some of the stories that we have. They're beautiful and, and, and incredible at the same time. And, and very so that's kind of like the first one. It's kind of like we have that like, if you're not ready to, to do any of these other services, we know that this is a basic need that our collectors have, right? So offering them collection management capability within the app has been a fantastic thing. And, and, and it's just grown considerably. I think we're close to nearly half a billion dollars in assets that are kind of stored within this, this app to date, which is extraordinary in its own right. Then we kind of introduced this monoline insurance product, right? And this goes to the heart of just understanding the type of insurance that our collectors are looking for. And this was kind of a long journey to kind of get the right carrier partner behind us. We are backed by Chubb and Chubb is literally the world's largest like publicly traded property and casualty insurer, right? So they have like 
200 billion in assets, maybe 40 billion plus in, in gross premium. They are who you want and they kind of concentrate on the high network space. We managed to have a, a wonderful introduction with Chubb where we kind of explain our product, our focus, and the underlying tech, Jason, that you speak of is we have a, a very sophisticated fraud mitigation al algorithm, right? That's kind of gauging maybe a dozen or so data points for individuals before they even enter our ecosystem. But right? no one's uploading pictures from the Rolex website and basically claiming that they have. That's right. Okay. That, that's right. Within app, you, you actually need to photograph the item in hand, right? Because we're, we're, we're also doing geotagging and a bunch of other things and, and aggregate that basically spits out a score that gives us a level of confidence that this individual is not a bad actor. And it also determines how heavy our underwriting should be for the item that they're looking to insure. And we also have an extraordinary head of underwriting and managed to pilfer him from a, a top tier insurance company who's underwriting for, for 25 years. And he focuses in, in the past, the, the collector car space. I think his book of business was like 13 or $14 billion of collector cars that he kind of concentrated on, which is an extraordinary important thing for us as well. That We want to make sure all of our employees, they come from a collector mindset. Like if you can't speak that collector language, it's hard to kind of have folks get behind the vision of what you're trying to build, right? So that monoline insurance product was very important for us. The underlying tech, the underlying underwriting capabilities, as well as the partnership with Chubb, very important. And then we have the lending business, which is really a, in pilot. We launched this the previous quarter. It's really, we're looking to allow individuals to unlock liquidity in their collectibles and do it, do so digitally and do so remotely. So you don't need to go to a, a shady pawnbroker that's not going to do the right, do right by you because they don't understand the value of the item that you have, or they do. And there's just a bunch of other challenges behind that. And then the last one is vaulting, which is physical vaulting of collectibles, which is a product we'll be launching this later this quarter. So that's kind of the breakout, the collection management, the monoline insurance, the lending, and then the vaulting itself. Okay. So let's talk about the all three of those. Okay. So we're going to start off with the collection management. Again, the entire being able to prove that you actually own this. I mean, you're doing, okay. So basically, of course, the person's attesting that the thing is there. You already said that you're taking live pictures that are geotagged. So what are you doing exactly? What's happening behind the scenes to say that, okay, this person has this thing. Probability is it's theirs. We can probably, we're safe to insure it. What, what are you looking at? Uh, what kind of data points that you're able to share with us are you looking at? Yeah, I mean, there's there are a few things. There's some things I'll I'll leave out for some obvious reasons, but the the key ones are as follows. And remember, this is all in aggregate, and it's to empower our underwriter and also make sure we're moving clients through at scale and at pace, right? So there's an element of of doing kind of a rapid income analysis on the individual, rapid employment data. So we we're trying to kind of do as as least of an invasive assessment of the individual that they are in fact a real person, right? It's kind of a, a necessary initial step to make sure that this person is legitimate. We also pull social media profiles to understand whether or not there's some legitimacy there as well. We're looking at home to collectible value. We're looking at the quality of images. In some instances, we'll do uh, soft credit checks, but all of these things are happening instantaneously and kind of internally sharing a number that basically says, look, high level of confidence that this person's good, we feel that is, is legitimate, but the, the underwriting ultimately comes down to the item itself, right? And so it's, it's funny when you look at the different parts of the business, when you're underwriting insurance, you're underwriting the individual very often. On the lending side, you're very often, very often underwriting the asset because that's where the value is in, in the event of a default on the lending side of, of the house. 
So in aggregate, we pull all these data points, we come up with kind of a rapid assessment. And, and sometimes it's it's on the money. Sometimes it's a little off because some people do not like to have social profiles. They don't like to, they're a little bit more discreet about the, the data that they have that's out there. But we do that with the best intentions in mind, right? To make sure we're bringing in the best quality of, of individuals that come in our, our door, because ultimately that will then lead to a more profitable book of business or as in insurance terms, a lower loss ratio. Excellent. So, all right. Now let's talk about the valuation of these things, right? Because you got to be able to verify value. So basically, and we're talking about a very broad category of, of things, right? Everything from artwork to baseball cards to comic books, shoes. I mean, some of these things, like for those who don't know, there's there's verification or certification companies out there that will verify the value and, and seal like your comic books and your and your cards and whatnot. So that I think that makes it easier for you probably. But how are you confirming or or basically valuing these things as part of your system? Yeah, the first step, and it's the right question, right? The first step in the process, we always default to the individual's mindset, right? So if the individual very often, the term agreed value is the value that the insured feels is the appropriate value for the item that they are looking to have coverage on. As the insurance partner looking to take on the risk in this uh, arrangement, it's incumbent upon us to do a a very rapid set of, of analysis to make sure that is actually in, in keeping with market values of these items. We're happy to say that a lot of these collectibles that are out there have very rich data sets out in the secondary market, especially watches, for instance. I think we have somewhere in the vicinity of access to about 200,000 data sets where we could pull the reference number of the piece, cross-reference it with a bunch of databases. And then we have an idea whether or not the agreed value that they are, they are looking to get is actually within the range of reasonableness. Now, if it's too high, if it's too low, those are also indicators that let us know whether or not the individual might be potentially a bad actor or or maybe they're just behind on where the market values of these items are. And very often we will come back to them and instantly say, look, we know you're looking for coverage of this this piece for 25,000, but our records indicate that it's probably closer to 15. It's probably not wise to be overpaying on that premium. Is that something you'd like to reconsider? And then we have the discussion that it generally goes back and forth. But by and large, our collectors are fairly in tune with market values. It's part of the reason why they're coming to us to begin with. They have an understanding of these secondary market prices. And so they're usually within the range of, of reason. Yep. Some collectible categories, you're completely right, Jason, because we start talking of one-on-one pieces, they generally require more underwriting behind the scenes. We have access to some of the top art appraisers that are out there, partnerships with sneaker companies, uh, secondary marketplaces. So if there's anything that doesn't feel right within the range of where our algorithm is saying is, is legitimate, we will take those extra steps to be like, hey, sanity check, does this feel about right? Excellent. Yeah. It's, uh... I was going to say, because I'm looking at some of these things like jewelry appraisal is going to be difficult, right? Like, I mean, especially to make sure that those gems are the gems that they say they are, the metals are the say that they are. So you're going to need third-party appraisal. Fair enough. And I mean, if you are if you have a piece of art or jewelry that is that valuable, that frankly, you need to insure it, you're going to take those steps anyway. So that, and you would need to do that anywhere else too. So that makes perfect sense. Okay. So, okay. You've assessed the value. You've insured them. They basically, or these provide the quote, they choose to insure. Let's talk about the, the warehousing or the other custody aspects of this. Cause you say you're getting into that. Talk to me about what you're doing there. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the lending product was an experiment that we put into play last quarter. And we see this as 
a great way for individuals to kind of unlock value in the collectibles that they have, right? It is a very cumbersome process and usually painful for individuals to unload a collectible, whether it be a watch, whether it be a piece of art or, or sports memorabilia. In some cases, these individuals are just looking for an infusion of capital, right? It's not necessarily because they are struggling to pay their bills. Very often it's, it's cash flow. And if they're sitting on a collection that is of note and they're looking for an infusion of, of cash, we will look at what they're looking to put forth as collateral. And, and it kind of coincides with market conditions for the loan to value that we put forth, right? So it could be anywhere between 40 to 60% loan to value. We give the individuals a quote and whether or not they'd feel good about it. And then we kind of discuss what the interest rates are are the marketplace. Now, this is one of the reasons why we were kind of, I'm calling this a pilot at this time. Interest rates are not exactly favorable for this type of product now, right? So the market conditions are basically making the cost of capital very expensive, right? So one of the reasons why we're, we're being a little bit more thoughtful and maybe a little bit more selective about the clients we bring in in the space is because Cash is not as cheap as it was even six months ago. If you look back even a year ago where money was virtually free, that is just not the market conditions today. But there's still always a space for an individual that's looking for a quick infusion of cash. If there is a general agreement and understanding that they feel good about the terms, we will take physical custody of the item. The item is then authenticated in person by our, our secondary market approver. From there, if everybody's all systems are go, cash is deployed to their bank account. We store the item within a vaulting facility and then standard payment terms apply it from that point forward. Jumped ahead. I was hoping to get the vaulting then lending, but you, you know, basically the bottom line is you need the vaulting for the lending, right? Because you have to have security, you have to have control of that physical object, right? So it makes perfect sense. So uh, we'll go back to vaulting in a second. So we're talking we'll talk about lending. So you've you've appraised it. I mean, and that that's that's a natural next step was monetization was how do I basically allow people to leverage this this asset should they need to? And as you said before, like what were your options before? Going to go into some loan shark, not loan shark, sorry, some uh, pawn shop, and, and and God knows if you get a fair price. So yeah, so it makes makes perfect sense, and I think it's a natural extension. So and, and let's be clear, you're not setting up these vaults yourself. Like these are all third party uh, relationships you have. Third party. I mean, for us, we've we've been <laughs> the the amount of research we went into to find the correct vaulting partner was staggering. Mainly because we want to make sure we're doing right by our clients, and we don't have to worry about it, right? Like in, because there is uh, the chain of custody that takes place. Once we are vaulting, we are responsible. That means the insurance needs to be fully in place. The conditions of the vault need to be exceptional. So we basically went after some of the, the best in class vaulting facilities that are out there. And individually now, this, this new vaulting product that, that is a kind of a separate from the lending product is really in, geared towards independent vaulting, right? So ironically enough, what we found in our focus group research is that a lot of individuals are collecting so much that especially when you're talking about sneakers or, or watches or other categories, the amount of space that boxes and papers take up is it's pretty absurd. So what folks are looking for is a very intuitive solution where they purchase an item. Let's just say that you buy a, a, a watch from an authorized dealer. The item could be shipped directly to our vaulting facility in Delaware. And in that, in that exchange, the items are then categorized, they're digitized, right? So we have digitization of the papers of the box and watch individually. All that stuff kind of gets organized within the app. So you always know when it comes in, what's there. And then very often we'll then ship the watch or the, the intent is to ship the watch over back to the individuals at the appropriate time. And then we continue to manage the box and papers at kind of a nominal fee to have it vaulted for them. 
but it also as an insurance company, it gives us the level of confidence that we know exactly what they have because we've seen the items physically. We understand what they are. So very often when they're looking to get insurance coverage, when the watch is back in their possession in the wild, it is now an opportunity to cross sell them our insurance uh, capability. Excellent. I mean, makes a lot of sense. I mean, the, uh, the space issue, we talk about a much, I'm sure everybody would want a better alternative when you're talking about, when you're talking about stuff like that to say just a regular storage locker, right? Like though, you know, the yeah. security, they got security, they got whatever, but you know, you're talking about like, all right, now I got to worry about like water damage, all kinds of other stuff. And, and do you really want to go into a general purpose storage locker versus safety deposit boxes can only hold so much, right? That's a challenge. And of course they, that solves your problem on lending because now you have some place where it's securely held until such time as the lending, the securities, the, the lend is, the loan is paid back. You're in good shape. So you've also got down that you're looking at, um, you know, you got an alpha you know, trial right now on appraisals. So talk to me about how that how that's going to work or how it changes the current experience. Well, the appraisals are kind of inherently baked into our our workflow, right? So for us, we're trying to take the appraisal experience off of the individual. Very often, we have uh, full underwriting authority up to a certain amount for different collectible categories, right? It's not like we need to go to Chubb for everything. We are kind of empowered up to certain levels. So for instance, if it's over a certain value and it requires an appraisal, we will get the appraisal on behalf of the client, right? We don't want them to deal with that because it's just, it's a painstaking, arduous effort that actually has a cost associated with. So we're willing to absorb that cost and kind of handle that as the kind of user experience evolves. We see this as kind of more of an ancillary complementary part of the business, right? Whether it's insurance, whether it's lending, whether it's vaulting, if they want to add on just getting an appraisal for an item within the workflow of any of those products, we're happy to do that. We don't see this as being like a a significant moneymaker independently. That's not really our intent. But like I said, we want to be at the center of the collector's universe. And at times, appraisals are required. So we know who to talk to. We know how to engage with regardless of category that's that's required. Well, I mean, short of getting into the marketplace yourself, which, you know, being a marketplace, which frankly, like there's already a lot of marketplaces out there specific to sure. individual things. So that's already a quote unquote red ocean. They compete it. I mean, you're taking care of everything else downstream involved with it, which I think is of un- incredible value. So great stuff. And uh, of course, you get to catalog all your stuff, right? So you're, you're in good shape. We think so. We're, 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 we're quite proud of it. And what I would say, like the tech stuff is always great. It's always fun and it, it won't make the business work if you don't have the right tech in place, especially at scale for mm-hmm. a tech company. But understanding that collector mindset is everything because every collector, they have their own tribe and they have every collector also has their why behind why they collect. So as we enter each one of these collector categories, we're doing so very authentically and mindfully, right? Like you can't, let me tell you, Jason, you cannot, if you're not a car guy and you go to a car meetup, they will smell that out, right? Well, forget boredom. You will be ostracized before you open your mouth because they know that you're not that person, right? So we think it's important as we start really tackling each one of these categories head on and authentically that it's being done with the right collectors that are there leading the charge for that category, right? So the underlying tech is, we kind of see that as table stakes, but understanding why and how a collector collects, I think that's what sets us apart from the rest. Excellent. So before we wrap up, there's three questions I ask everybody to make sure just on a positive note. And uh, the first one is, if you had one wish for something you can change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? One thing I could change in the company or 
industry as a whole? <laughs> well, stuff. I'd probably just, if I could just wave my magic wand, I'd eliminate all fraud. <laughs> How about that? That would make all your fraud. life so much easier. Fraud is gone. No longer a factor in any of the tech or any of the people we engage with. Well, I mean, any, any frankly, any platform that deals with anything that has any form of value. Yeah. That's, that's where you're spending your hours, man. Like that's, that's the, that's the whack-a-mole you got to play. Yeah. So I, I totally get that frustration. It might be the answer to the second question I have for you, which is what's been the biggest challenging in the platform today to where it is today? Well, for us, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, obviously it ties to that, right? Because it's important that when you're growing any aspect of your business that you're doing so thoughtfully and methodically, right? Because if we could open we could open up the valves to allow anybody to enter our, our ecosystem, which will certainly grow the top line of the business. But as claims start rolling in, because we're not thinking about the quality of what's coming in, then you're no longer running a profitable business. So it's the balancing act of how do we really fill the pipe with really high value leads and customers and, 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 and collectors that we that genuinely care about this product. And then just it's like it's like a balancing act, right? You don't want to open up too much. You also don't want to close it, slow it down too much. How much are you going to stifle straight through processing versus the manual step of underwriting, right? And that that is the a very tricky aspect of our business, especially on the insurance side of the house. Excellent. And absolutely right. And it's actually the thing that will break you, right? Like, I mean, like if your primary primary role is insuring things, your job is to get it right full stop and and not let that, you know, either not, and to price that risk accordingly, otherwise you're in trouble. And if you can't clean, if you can't do that right on the front end, you're in, you're in serious, serious trouble. Last question for you is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and keeps you getting up in the morning to keep on fighting the good fight that is entrepreneurship. So you have to understand that I come from a very traditional management consulting background, working for fortune 500 companies and dealing with their big problems what I love about this line of work, it's allowed me to get my hands dirty again. As a CEO, like you hear the title and it's just like, it's, it's probably the least glamorous title you could have when you understand what it is. The level of administration, the level of, of, of trying to understand, connect. I also love that part because if you're, if you're not getting into the weeds and you're not understanding what your clients care about, it's taking you further and further away from what matters and the value you bring to whatever situation you're in. So I, I love that part of it, is that I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty. I'm not afraid to talk to clients. I'm not a- afraid to talk to, to partners. Whereas in a prior life, you're kind of a couple steps away. Sometimes you have that access. Sometimes you have to be very careful. And this line of work in a startup, if you confront a wall, you don't always have to knock down the wall, go around the wall, find other ways to get around. And I love that side of this game. I really do. Yeah, that's the difference between a uh, that's, the, that's the difference between a uh, kung fu master and a newbie. Is you try to break one tries to break with, and the other one just avoids it. There's no that's there's right. no point. That's anyway, right. So, uh, Rich, Richard, thank you so much for taking the time. Sincerely appreciate it. My pleasure, Jason. That was my interview with Richard Vinhay, CEO of Wax. Hope you enjoyed that. And if you're in the U.S. and you're looking to insure any of your high-end collectibles, please take a look. Just just download the app and catalog your inventory. That's the first step. Everything else is a great benefit. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is your podcast. Until next time, take care.
This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.